You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, In just a moment, we're going to jump into Galatians 5. So please turn there in your Bibles or on your device, Galatians 5, and and we'll be there in a moment. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Caleb, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us this morning to be under God's word together. Um, Well, this saga with COVID has stretched out so much longer than most of us anticipated originally, hasn't it? Um, And it's come with so many seriously negative effects for us. Uh, They're they're, they're hard. It's been a difficult time. Um, But I want to share a very lighthearted benefit that's come to our home without making light of those. I want to share about how my home has actually received a blessing through this time. Um, And it's this. I've gotten into sourdough bread making. And I'm not sure if that would have happened without the lockdown, but I'm glad it did. And Maudie, my wife, uh, even got me a Dutch oven uh, for Father's Day uh, to help me out. I didn't even know what that was a few weeks ago, but uh, I'm in the bread making now, and I'm learning all sorts of little bread making ins and outs, like how to refresh the starter and what a proofing basket is. Uh, You might not know what a proofing basket is. I didn't, but I'll, I'll explain it to you. Um, basically, a proofing basket is used for bread doughs that are too soft or too wet to maintain their shape when they're rising. So before you bake a bread, you let the, the dough rise, but if you just throw it onto a counter and, and let it rise there, it basically turns into like an extra large pancake, and, and that's not very delicious bread. But if you put it into a proofing basket, you just, you just leave it to do its thing, and you come back like two hours later, and you'll see that it's risen. It's grown freely all on its own. But it looks like bread you'd actually want to eat because it's taken the shape of the basket. Well, the reason I bring this up is because I find a similar principle of growth in the text we'll be looking at today. Like sourdough bread, we grow best with a guide. In fact, like bread, we perish without one. To grow into what God wants us to be, he puts us into a basket, per se, and says, you're free. Grow. Be ruled by your guide and rise into something glorious and delicious. Well, let's read our passage together and ask God to help us understand. Again, we're in Galatians 5, and we'll start off in verse 13. This is God's word. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, 
you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's word. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you commune with us in your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. We thank you uh, uh, that you have given us a way to know you, Lord. Your word is more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey because it leads us to you. And we thank you that that is the case. And so, Lord, now as we come to you, as we come under your word, we ask that your spirit would shape us, that it would, uh, that it would lead us, that you would give us understanding, and that you would, you would lead us, Lord, to adore you, to worship you, to trust you in greater ways. Help us see you, Jesus, and, and savor you and become more like you as we look at your word together. Lord, we, we thank you, we praise you that you are passionate about doing this, and, and so we we pray all this confident that you're going to answer with all your grace because this is, this is what you long to do, to show us yourself, to cause us to worship you, and to make us look like you. So we, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think Paul's main point here is this. The life ruled by the Spirit is the life freed for love. The life ruled by the Spirit is the life freed for love. And to see this, we're going to look at our status, our strategy, and our struggle. All of these being produced by the Spirit. So first, let's look at our status. Paul starts this section we just read by reminding us of our Spirit-produced status. But it's helpful to go back in the letter just a little bit. So, so go to chapter 4, verse 4, and I'm going to read it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Pay pay attention now. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Okay, did you hear the status that was given to us? Those who trust in the gospel are freed from the law as the way to God. We've been adopted. We're no longer slaves. We've been freed and are immediately given the Spirit. That's a package deal in the Bible. Adoption, freedom, the Spirit. They're, They're inseparable. God makes us free through adoption, and adoption becomes official as we receive his spirit. Now, Paul wrote this letter to Galatian Christians sort of astonished because 
they were leaving this rich status. Their relationship with God was based on grace, but they were turning to a relationship based on works, specifically the work of circumcision. So he responds by telling them all about the good news again. They were saved by grace into freedom. And he warns them, going back into legalism is to forfeit their status. So at the beginning of our chapter, in verse 1, he says this, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. It's, it's a bad, bad trade. Well, now in verse 13, he alerts them to another error, not of losing their status, but of abusing it. He already had, uh, addressed the ditch of legalism. Now he's going to address the ditch of license. Okay? To fall back into rule keeping means we lose our freedom. To fall into living however we want means we abuse our freedom. So verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't abuse it. But through love, serve one another. And this sort of begs the question, uh, what is freedom anyway? The way we tend to think about freedom in the modern Western world is not the same way that Paul is using the word. When Paul says we're free, he means that we're free from the law. Now, this doesn't mean that we get to determine our own standards of living and just live however we want. Freedom means that we, are, we already have a relationship with God through adoption and thus don't need to keep the law to earn a relationship with him. We, we already have it. And so we're freed from the law. But this doesn't mean we throw the law away because the law is an expression of who God is. And thus it's in line with everything good and beautiful and true. Far from being free to do whatever we want, we're actually all the more compelled to pursue the law in an act of worship. His grace grows his grace grows our adoration and thus our passion to please him and to be like him. And so we're urged forward toward his law, uh, toward his will that's expressed in the law. And Tim Keller puts it well. He says, we are freed or the gospel frees us from the law for the law. The gospel frees us from the law for the law. Our status comes with a calling. It always does. No one becomes a, a mom or a dad just so that we can celebrate Father's Day or Mother's Day. When, when, when you become a dad, that means, when I became a dad, it means I inherently moved, I was moved to provide and protect and serve my children. Being a mom means you're directed to nurture and to love them. Status comes with calling. It always does and when we ignore the calling we misuse the status okay our status is that of God's children we're freed from the law we're already his children well what's the calling implicit for God's children to fulfill the law in verse 14 Paul reminds us just how the entire law is fulfilled you shall love your neighbor as yourself this is the aim of our status. This is the direction of our freedom. God's free children radiate the love that we've received to others. If we were bread dough, a life of love is the delicious loaf. God is, is growing us 
to be. Tim Keller is helpful here. He says, modern people like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and, puts on, and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even to live is destroyed. The fish is not more free, but less free, if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground. But if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. The same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, those that fit the realities of our nature and those of the world. So the the status of freedom inherently binds us to love. Love is the new habitat we swim in. We're not free without restrictions to grow in any direction that, 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 that we want. Verse 13 says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Okay, so we're free, free to grow up in love. Verse 13 ends, but through love serve one another. Okay, this is, this is a good definition of love, serving one another. Serving is seeking another's good or welfare regardless of the cost and regardless of whether they deserve it or not. So at its heart, love is, is selfless service, and it's the only direction that we're permitted to grow in. Okay, so how does the rubber hit the road here? Well, let me ask you this. Do you find yourself talking a lot about your rights, your rights as an American, as a Christian, as a mere human being? I think we have rights and that they're good and that we should celebrate them. They're based off the fact that we are made in God's image and live freely in the gospel of grace. But are you abusing your rights? Are you misusing your status as God's freed adopted child? Here's how to know. Here's the test. Are you using your rights mainly to love and protect and serve others or to love serve and protect yourself like are you using your freedom of speech to to ridicule others and build yourself up or to build others up are you using your gospel freedom to eat and drink and dance and and maybe smoke in a way that hinders someone or, or, or pulls you into a life of sin if loving others isn't your aim you're acting like a fish proclaiming freedom while climbing onto dry land. That, that's not freedom. That's suicide. If you're a Christian, you're God's child, and you're free. But not to, not, you're not free to live however you want. You're free from the law for the law. You're free to love. When you think about your rights, do it correctly. The, their purpose is to love others. Well, that's the trajectory our freedom, our status, set us on. But this trajectory of growing up into love involves a great struggle. And that's, that's point two. It, it, it's the struggle, our struggle. It's a spirit-produced struggle. And verses 16 through 18 describe it. But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, so there are two competing forces working in every Christian, the spirit and the flesh. And what Paul means here by the word flesh doesn't mean like your actual skin and bones and and blood or whatnot. He's talking about our sinful nature that still lives inside each of us. It's the parts of our hearts that have not yet been renewed by the spirit. And and the chief characteristic of the flesh is self-regard. I think John Newton uh, comes up with a great name for this part of us when he refers to it as Mr. Self. Okay, this is, that's a fitting name for our flesh, Mr. Self. Well, before the Spirit came to take residence in us, there was no struggle. This is why this is a Spirit-produced struggle. Mr. Self had free reign. He was unopposed and, and unchecked. But with our adoption, there's been an invasion by the Spirit. He's been dropped into in, behind enemy lines, into, in a, in, into enemy territory with orders to overthrow Mr. Self, okay? The Spirit has begun a renewal project, and this, and the, 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 this Mr. Self, the, the flesh, resists it. That's what it means that the Spirit and the flesh are opposed to one another, okay? They're going like this. Well, m- many people love the idea of freedom of the will. We think that we're free when we can do whatever the heck we want to do, But when we do whatever we want to do, we're actually in bondage to what we want. Martin Luther called this the bondage of the will because our desires become our master, we must follow. But biblically, we're only free when we're freed from this bondage to Mr. Self and able to pursue what God wants and who he made us to be, to love God and to love others. And this this only happens when the Spirit's rules up it rules us okay the life ruled by the spirit is a life freed for love so mr self and the spirit they're in constant contention because they cannot rule simultaneously verse 16 shows us that at any one point in life we will live by one or gratify the other one way or the other we will be ruled by self or by spirit and and none at the same time. And so ever since the Spirit came, uh, the flesh, Mr. Self, and the Spirit have been playing a bit of a game of king of the mountain. Well, verse 17 says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. This tells us a bit about the nature of the battle. It's a war between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the, 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 the Spirit. The desires of Mr. Self and the desires of the Spirit. The word desires here may be understood as over-desires or inordinate desires. Basically, it's a desire that's graduated from a want and become a demand, an all-controlling desire, which ends up ruling us. And one of the tricky things about this is that it's typically a desire for a good thing. It's not a bad thing that we want this thing. The, the problem is, is that we want it too much, so much that the desire becomes our master or an idol. 
So verse 17 could be read like this. The over-desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Okay? And Paul shows us what life looks like when Mr. Self and his desires rule us. Verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, I'm not going to go through each one of these, but a few comments. First, notice that this is just a sample list. It's not exhaustive. It's representative. Notice at the end, he says, and things like these. It's not all-inclusive. Next, notice that all of these are rooted in self. They're a result of Mr. Self ruling our hearts, conquering us with self-regard, which only treats others as a, as a means to please self in some way or another. And finally, notice how destructive each one of these works of the flesh is to relationships. Just, just look around our world right now. N- nearly everything wrong right now, and there's a lot that's wrong, nearly everything wrong right now Everything wrong in our country, in our community, everything wrong in our church or our family or in our own hearts is because Mr. Self is having his way. Andrew Peterson rightly says, over the gateway of self is a sign that says, abandon hope all who enter. It's a hellish, helpless place. Self is a helpless, hellish place and hopeless place. Paul agrees. In verse 21, at the end of what we just read, he gives us a stark warning. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, what he means by doing these things is is a habitual practice, not infrequent and repented of sins. For someone to live like this in an ongoing way without fighting means that the Spirit hasn't yet renewed them. Paul isn't undermining our assurance here. Remember, he's attacking, he's dismantling non-religious license and complacency. But friends, here is good news. Remember, remember, this was us left to ourselves. But if you're a Christian, the Spirit has invaded and he's taking over. Verse 17 says, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. You see, the Spirit has longings and yearnings as well, and they're strong, and they're beautiful. What is the Spirit passionate about? Well, we heard this two weeks ago in John. The Spirit came, he comes to glorify Jesus. So while Mr. Self longs for all sorts of created things that serve himself, the Spirit yearns to glorify Jesus by spotlighting him and by conforming us to be like him. Okay, and this is shocking Uh, Look at verse 17 again. The flesh is against the spirit. Okay, then we're going to skip to the end. The flesh is against the spirit to keep us from doing the things we want to do. Paul is saying that the desires of the spirit are actually what we want most. This is the new self that's been adopted and freed. We're, We're a new Creation. Yes, the flesh, the old self, longs to knock the spirit off 
the throne. He's warring to take it back. But the reborn person, the spirit-filled, adopted child, ultimately most deeply desires what the spirit wants. So there's much hope in this verse. Uh, Keller writes, even when we are falling into sin, we can say with Paul, this is not the real me. This is not what I really want. I want God and his will. You see, we really are freed because now when we follow the law, we don't do it because we have to do something we don't want to do. Now we're urged to do something we already long to do, but by ourselves can't. Commentator F.F. Bruce says, this new slavery, this law of love is impelled by the spirit within, not by an external authority. So in the end, when we're ruled, we are actually freed. The life ruled by the spirit is the life freed for love. Well, what does this look like when the spirit fulfills his desires? What's it look like to live a free life? It's described in verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, I'm not going through each part of these either, but you should see that they're very different from the works of the flesh. Primarily, the works of the flesh destroy relationships while the fruit gives them life. And that's because the fruit is really just a picture of love and its effects. The fruit is a picture of what a life of love looks like. F.F. Bruce argues, where love is present, the other virtues will not be far away. It is love that binds them all together in perfect harmony. The, the, The fruit is a picture of what it looks like to fulfill the law, the life our freedom is meant to bring forth. It's a picture of who we want to be, and ultimately it's a picture of a life that looks like Jesus. This is who he is. This is what we continue to receive from him day by day, and it's who the Spirit is growing us to be. You might be asking, but how do I get there? Well, first, remember the context. It's struggle. We grow as we struggle. We mature as we battle. And next, the word fruit was chosen carefully, and it's really helpful. Uh, Keller suggests that the fruit metaphor explains at least four things about how the Spirit works to grow us. Christian growth is gradual, it's symmetrical, it has internal roots, and it's inevitable. So first, it's gradual. It's as gradual as a peach or a plum. It doesn't happen overnight. Christian growth is like the spring. It shows up a little bit at a time, slowly and gradually pushing back winter. Second, the fruit has internal roots. It isn't the result of self-effort or self-improvement. Its, re- its source is the spirit, not self. Next, Christian growth is symmetrical. Paul intentionally used the word fruit in the singular to describe a whole list of things that grow in the spirit-ruled person. Okay, this is vital to see. The real fruit of the spirit always grows up together. They are one. We don't get one without the other. They always grow up together. 
Finally, growth is inevitable. Like we heard last week, the movement of the Spirit is evident. There will be growth. There will be growth if you're a Christian. Keller tells about a story of a man who, when he died, was buried under a marble slab, and somehow or another, uh, an acorn fell into his grave, and uh, over time, gradually and unnoticed, the acorn grew, and eventually, it split open the marble. Such was its power. And Keller asked, marble or a tiny seed? If you don't know about how things grow, you bet on the marble. But of course, in fact, your money should be on the acorn. If you're a Christian, then the Spirit is in you, and His fruit will grow. It's inevitable. And this should be both encouraging and challenging for those of you who are suffering right now. Your, your particular pain is not preventing the Spirit's work. The Spirit lives in you while you hurt. He longs to grow His fruit in your heart now. In fact, grief and trial are often the most fertile soil. So this time of suffering is not meaningless. The Spirit is at work. Now, if you're suffering, you're likely seeing a lot of the works of the flesh. It feels like your circumstances are, are squeezing them right out of you. And this is where it's challenging. You're not off the hook for Mr. Self and what he does, what, what his desires that come out. Uh, the Spirit wants control, yes, in your suffering. But here's another encouragement. No matter what your life is like, no matter where it began or what sort of baggage it has, the fruit of the Spirit will burst through. The fruit of the Spirit will burst through, no matter how marble-hard the conditions. It's inevitable. The life ruled by the Spirit is the life freed for love, even during your suffering. Well, by now you might be asking, if it's inevitable, what are we to do to grow? And uh, I'm glad you're asking that. Uh, we've seen what the Spirit's rule looks like, but We've also been given a strategy to follow, okay? That's the third and final point, uh, the last point. Our Spirit-produced strategy. So far, we've been commanded to walk by the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. In verse 25, we're told, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is our strategy. In, in various ways, we're being commanded to come under the constant, moment-by-moment control and guidance of the Spirit. We need to be ruled by Him. The life ruled by the Spirit is the life freed for love. Okay, and this is amazing. Uh, to see the beauty of being ruled by the Spirit, we need to actually look back at verse 16. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Did you see that little beautiful nugget in there uh, called a promise? That there's a promise there to be mine, not carrying out the deeds of the flesh. It, it's not a command. It's part of a promise. So, so this is the promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, we're not commanded, don't walk in the flesh. We're promised that when we're ruled by the Spirit, we won't be ruled by self. We'll live free. What a beautiful promise. We'll live free free. 
Now, the emphasis here is on the Spirit's power, not on our own. He is the subject, but that doesn't mean we do nothing. We're to be active objects, not, not like a football being tossed back and forth, uh, uh, passively. Being God's child is synonymous with being led by God's Spirit. So we're to be more like a galloping racehorse uh, being steered by a jockey, okay? He, he leads us down the track of God's Word, God's law of love, better than we could ever do alone. So how do we do this? How do we walk in the Spirit? This is the strategy, okay? First, we remember that we belong to Christ, and this has implications. Verse 24 tells us, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, we belong to Christ, and so when, not if, our desires begin to feel like demands, we pick up on the whispering traitor that's lingering around called Mr. Self, and we, re- we recall we crucified him. That, that's what happened when we came to Jesus. Mr. Self was crucified, and so what we do is we leave him hanging there, treating him as if he's dead. He, he no longer has a say in our decision-making. We don't belong to him anymore, so, so we don't pursue self first. He's dead. We belong to Christ, and we have his spirit who's become our very source of life. Second, we follow him simply. Verse 25 says, if we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Okay, Paul is saying it's already a given that we live by the spirit, so let's keep in step with him. We can't do the former without the latter. If we live by him, we'll inevitably keep in step with him. So being ruled by the Spirit is just what you do when he rules you. Uh, Our strategy is difficult because Mr. Stealth is still flailing about obnoxiously, but it's obvious. Let the one who rules you rule you. And with each step, not just the big ones, the the, the small ones too, all of them, all of your life, let the one who rules you, rule you. One of the best practical illustrations I have of this came in a recent conversation with a friend. My friend has been struggling with chronic physical pain for years and found himself giving into a cocktail of prescription drugs and alcohol to try to get some relief. And he was convicted, not that wanting relief was wrong, but that he was wanting relief too much. So, so much that he was trading relief for being lovingly present in his relationships. He was choosing self over loving others. So when we last met, he told me he's turning away from these actions. He's, he still feels a lot of pain and longs for relief. But now when he feels the urge to abuse the drugs, he's stopping and praying, Lord, I want this, but what do you want? Empower me to want what you want. Okay, this, this is a beautiful picture of being ruled by the Spirit. Being ruled by the Spirit is asking, Spirit, what do you want? What do you want? And then listening, and then depending on him to help us act. So we get the same application as we did two weeks ago. It's dependent prayer. This is the only way we'll ever grow to be what we're meant to be. The life ruled by the Spirit is a life freed for love. Well, friends, we have a role in sanctification. We are to be ruled by the Spirit. We're to walk with Him moment by moment. 
But sanctification is not something we can accomplish. Being loving isn't natural. We can't will ourselves to it. So, so let's lay down our gifts. Let's lay down our strengths and our will and say, Come, Holy Spirit, what, what do you want? Please rule me. Well, as I end, remember, if you, you're a Christian, you're free. The Spirit is living in you, and his fruit is inevitable. So let him rule you. Depend on him moment by moment and wait to see what he will do. And if you're not a Christian, please know that the Spirit is it's available to you. He can be yours. You only need to see your need and put your trust in Christ rather than self for a relationship with God. So don't continue to be ruled by the treacherous Mr. Self. Re- receive the Spirit and His rule and be freed to do what you're made, what you're made for. Love. Ultimately, we're being called to live in a new age here, the age of the Spirit. This, this is a call to live in a restored Eden that is already here partially in the church and will one day soon fully arrive. It's a call to live as the new humanity that the Spirit empowers us to be. It's a call to be freed from self so that we can walk with our God, to experience a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, he longs to walk with his people. Let's be ruled by his Spirit. Please pray with me. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.